shall pay. Black Prince, I curse you with my name. You shall be Blackula. Blackula. Blackula rises from the grave yet again, and just in time for Black History Month. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Writer Rodney Barnes has resurrected William Marshall's vampire from the 1972 black exploitation film for a new graphic novel called Blackula, Return of the King. Barnes is a writer and producer with TV credits for The Boondocks and Everybody Hates Chris and comics such as Philadelphia. He's also earned top honors from the Peabody Awards, American Film Institute, Writers Guild of America, and NAACP Image Awards. He'll be appearing on a panel about horror at Black Comics Day on February 12th. So I thought it was the perfect time to sit down with him to discuss his career and horror. Even as a kid, Rodney Barnes was attracted to the idea of tackling Blackula and remaking it to allow the character to develop in new ways. Barnes will be appearing on a panel called Get Shooked, the New Masters of Horror, with fellow writers John Jennings and Kevin Grievous. All three will have stories in a new horror anthology coming out called Shook. So I'm doing a three-part podcast featuring each writer. I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back to speak with Rodney Barnes about horror, all kinds of vampires, and juggling a multi-hyphenate career. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother. From American International Pictures. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. Today we're going to sit down with Rodney Barnes, whose latest work is Blackula, Return of the King. But Barnes is a prolific artist who's navigated a career that encompasses TV, comics, and film. So I wanted to know, how do you juggle all that? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, when I get up at three in the morning to juggle those three things, I ask myself the same question. I think a lot of it had to do with the order of how those various worlds opened for me opportunity-wise. I wanted to be a comics writer first. That's what I tried, but I wasn't able to get that door to open. And so um, I made my way to Hollywood. And what I'm known for primarily is being a television writer. And that was the door that opened first. And then I started doing movie rewrites as well. And so those two worlds were primarily 
what I was known for and how I, you know, kind of keep a roof over my head. And then probably two thirds into my career, I got an opportunity on the uh, TV show Runaways, uh, the Marvel show Runaways, and made it known that if the opportunity were ever to become possible, I'd love to write a comic. And the powers that be from Marvel Television connected with Marvel Publishing and said, hey, we've got this guy. We like what he does. Maybe you should give him a shot. And they did with The Falcon. And that was my first comic book opportunity. And it went okay, but it opened the door. And once that door was open, I sort of continued to knock on it and more opportunities came and, and so on and so forth. So um, the comics world, like virtually the other two as well, are difficult to maintain and to make a living off of. So you sort of make a commitment with yourself that once you're in it, if you love it, you just have to figure out a way to keep going. And I love it. So I keep going. And what was it about comics that you were so attracted to and made you want that as kind of your primary outlet for your creativity? Uh, when I was a kid, my mother, and this was way before computers and all of that, she was a school teacher. And when she would do her lesson plans, she would go to the public library and she would put me over in the pen where they would keep the kid books, the baby books. I was maybe four or five years old. And I was never really attracted to like Dr. Seuss or Curious George or any of those books. And I knew where, I don't know how I was drawn to them, but like a weather vane to water, I knew where the comic books were. Don't know how, don't know why, but there was this box full of comic books. And there was something about, I don't know if it was like the graphic storytelling, superheroes, whatever it was. And mostly it was Neil Adams artwork. And Neil Adams is like a legendary uh, artist in the medium. And it was something about it that just grabbed me and wouldn't let go. And I started to love going to the library because I wanted to see these books. And for a while, I thought this was the only place where they had comic books. Like I wanted to come back here again and again and again and fell in love with the idea of superheroes. And it made me want to read. It made me understand story in a very primitive way, but it made me understand story. Like I knew what was going on in the stories in a more mature kind of way, like good versus evil and all of this stuff. And so a love affair was born. And in a weird way, as I was getting older, comics evolved. And they went from the sort of, if you remember the Adam West, Batman, pow, bam, like Kitty, as my grandfather would call them, funny books. It became more mature and more evolved, the storylines and the themes from those Batman superhero stories to uh, Alan Moore's more evolved Watchmen and V for Vendetta and Neil Gaiman's Sandman stories, which were would walk with mythology and that type of stuff. And this was happening as I was getting older. So comics were becoming more mature as I was becoming more mature. So there was a reason to keep this connection going as I was moving through life. And so it just stayed. And as I became a professional writer, it sort of was a natural evolution to want to sort of make them now instead of just being a fan. 
And you are going to be on a panel called Shook, which does focus more on horror. So what is the attraction of the horror genre and what do you feel you can do within horror that maybe you can't do elsewhere or that just attracts you? Well, in the comic book space, I think if there's a name that I've made for myself, it's mostly as a horror writer. My biggest book in the horror space independently is called Philadelphia. It's for Image Comics that I write and created along with Jason Sean Alexander, who illustrates the book. And I also have another book out right now called Blackula, who is from the legendary exploitation character from my own company, Zombie Love Studios. I always felt like in a horror space, African-American culture was never really represented on an equal footing. I grew up loving the Hammer films and the Universal Monsters and I never really saw that representation until, you know, a little bit with the black exploitation films, but never really until now we're getting into this sort of renaissance period with Jordan Peele films and maybe here and there in different places, uh, Lovecraft country, even though that's as much fantasy as anything else. Um, and so when Shook came along, it was like, this was an opportunity to work with uh, a bunch of accomplished writers to you know, lend my services, guys who've written horror before and love it like I do as well, and hopefully add something substantive as well to their works and uh, hopefully do some quality stuff. Talk about Philadelphia just for people who may be not familiar with what it's about. The primary storyline in Philadelphia, I think the thing that probably stands out above all others is there's a father-son relationship. It takes place in Philadelphia. The father is a homicide detective who is on the trail of a serial killer. He gets killed uh, in that process. His son, who is a Baltimore, he's estranged from his father. He's a Baltimore beat cop, comes home to close out his father's affairs, finds his father's journal, reading his father's private thoughts and notes. His father was keeping notes about this serial killer comes to find that his father believed that the serial killer was a vampire and thinks his father was crazy, but wants to one-up his father since his father's dead and decides to close out the case that his father, or solve the case that his father couldn't solve. Goes down that rabbit hole and comes to the same conclusion that maybe this is indeed a vampire. But if my father was killed by a vampire, there's a good chance that my father is a vampire too. He digs up his father, opens up the coffin, spoiler alert, and his father says, what took you so long? And the two of them now are on the trail of a vampire serial killer who happens to be John Adams, the second president of the United States, who's looking to overtake America and change it into the face of what the founding fathers at one point hoped America would be and not the oligarchical dynamic it has become. And then you are returning to vampires in a very different way with Blackula. Blackula, he thirsts for your blood. He hungers for your soul. What was the attraction of kind of going back to this 70s exploitation film? William Marshall was great as Blackula. Vampires. I think they're possibly the most fascinating of all. What kind of themes were you hitting differently within that vampire genre? Black exploitation in general, if you look at it, there's a romantic aspect to black exploitation in the sense that 
it was the first time you saw black actors carrying the narrative in a lot of different genres, but a lot of times they didn't have great scripts or great budgets and they had to make the best of what they had to work with. And so there were some really, really cool ideas in Blackula, but there were some problematic elements as well. And I think William Marshall and some of the other actors in there um, were really great actors and they made the best with what they had. And so even as a kid, when I saw the movie, I always said, if I ever had the chance to do this again, I would take out this, I would do that, I would change some things around. And underneath black exploitation, there was this subversive idea of what was happening in society that was like the civil rights movement and um, the Pan-African movement, there was this feeling of revolution that was under all of them with the Afros and the fashion and the music and just, there was this tone that was there. And if you look at what's happening in American society right now, there's a similar thing with the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of the things that are happening within our society at this moment. It might not be as cohesive, but there's still an element of discourse within um, our, our current dynamic. And so I felt like if um, there was a way to speak to a little bit of what's happening today and build a bridge between yesterday and today, there was a way to make some really cool ties between the past and the present. Your version of Blackula has not come out yet. I haven't had a chance to read it. But the film had some interesting layers to it in terms of history that kind of gave Blackula a very different kind of context than what the Dracula legend that Bram Stoker had created was. Yes. So how is that kind of playing out in your comic? Well, you know, in the movie, and that was the thing that I dug about it the most, the idea that you enter with is Prince Mama Walde comes to Count Dracula, who is a dignitary, and says, you know, he doesn't know he's a vampire. And he says, can you help us stop the slave trade? Slavery has merit, I believe. Merit? You find merit in barbarity? Barbarous from the standpoint of a slave, perhaps. Intriguing. And delightful for mine. I would willingly pay for so beautiful an addition to my household as your delicious wife. Sir, I suddenly find your cognac as distasteful as your manner. You're behaving like some animal. Really? Really? Let us not forget, sir. It is you who comes from the jungle. Our evening is finished. I pray you arouse your coffin. We are leaving. I do not think so. Instead of helping him, you know, Count Dracula says, not only am I not going to help you, I'm going to turn you into a vampire and kill your wife and all these bad things. And I'm going to slap this name on you, Blackula, and you're cursed forever. And then the movie makes this turn into now you're going to be this predator and I'm going to send you, you're going to ironically end up in South Central and you're going to start biting people. And you're going to have this pristine cape on and you're going, your afro is going to get bigger every time you become feral and you're going to be this cool guy. That beginning idea of him with Dracula and the politics that are under that, I always thought was really cool and something that could be built off of. And I sort of get into that place. I sort of go from there in his revenge on Dracula and sort of being haunted by the idea 
with my vampires, both in Philadelphia and in Blackula, the part that's human, the, the faded memory, the echo of who you were as a human being still remains. It's like the body is almost like a prison. And even in immortality, you're haunted. Almost how I think trauma haunts us, the childhood trauma haunts us as adults, and we carry it through life. I think in my vampires, I try to do a similar thing. You're haunted by the idea of who you were as a human being. Even though you need that you have this thirst for blood and you're going through, I always felt like the whole vampire mythos in movies, I know books have done it for a while, that you're kind of leaving a lot on the on the uh, cutting room floor of just having this entity want blood. And I know there have been a million different ways to do vampires. Some do karate, some are really cool, some go to the sexy store and get leather and dance. But to be able to get into more of a psychological thing, with the Anne Rice ones have done that at times as well. And I love those. And I love the new AMC show as well. I try to go more into that path of a psychological, spiritual thing of where we're haunted by the people that we were and the things that we've become. And it's hard to really shake the people that we are. And because I think oftentimes we wrestle with life and we wrestle with the people that we are trying to overcome ourselves and being a monster and having immortality, kind of like being rich, doesn't help you overcome yourself. Now, something like Blackula taps into a little bit of history and a little bit of the real world. But you have a new book coming out, Crownsville, yes. which really sounds like it's tapping into kind of what I would call real world horrors that kind of feed into the horror genre. So talk a little bit about kind of how real things in the world that are horrific can feed into horror writing and, and how you can kind of deal with those things. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of uh, your classic ghost stories come from real stuff and real history. And it's hard sometimes because certainly when you're dealing when you inject race into it, it becomes difficult sometimes because you don't want to exploit the idea of what people went through for entertainment purposes. So you have to you have to add a degree of empathy into the storytelling in order to bring a purposefulness to it. But in the case of Crownsville, you know, Crownsville is a real mental hospital or was a real, it's condemned now, but was a real mental hospital um, right outside uh, my hometown in Annapolis, Maryland, one of the first black mental asylums, where there are a couple thousand unmarked graves of uh, some of the black mental patients that were there. It's a ghost story of what happened to a lot of people who were, uh, who unfortunately were and I, I want to say incarcerated there because they really weren't many weren't treated there they were experimented on it wasn't like a mental when you hear the word hospital you think treatment you were treated to get better and to be released as a better version of yourself but back during that period of time many were exploited and what happened was you know I was always intrigued by this place and I went and I spoke to a couple of people who worked there and some of the security staff, and they would tell me about things that they heard that went bump in the night and buildings they wouldn't go into and things that they saw. And it was intriguing to me because I like that kind of stuff. 
And so when I started to look at some of the case files of some of the people and things that they saw that correlated with things that they talked about, I was like, there's some stories here. And so when I looked at stories like The Shining or stories that were sort of mired in history, I was like this sort of The Haunting of Hill House or some of the other story, you know, classic ghost stories. It was like this walks right within the tradition of that. So why not take a stab at, um, you know, telling that type of story? And it seems like doing something like that can also use comics or films or television to kind of open people's eyes yes. to things that they may not know about. Because I know that like in Lovecraft Country, especially the TV version of it, mm -hmm. you know, there were things that were brought up that I think a lot of Americans are not aware of, or at least not aware of from a Black perspective. Yes. I think certainly for Watchmen as well, which was another HBO miniseries, a lot of people didn't know about the Tulsa race riots or that in World War II when, you know, the Nazis were dropping leaflets about to the black soldiers trying to get them to use racism as to why they shouldn't fight them. And little anecdotes about history that we don't get in the school system. History is such a hot topic right now, again, within um, the politics of today, that anytime you can invoke that type of subject matter within pop culture and within entertainment, it sort of adds, as you were saying, some a little more of some layers to it. It makes it a little more substantive. It's just sort of disposable fast food type throwaway uh, entertainment. And so it's fun, you know, when it works and it's good and people, you know, it gives them something satisfying. But it also makes it the type of work that makes it feel like it's purposeful and makes you feel good about the work that you do. Well, and it also seems that people can often be resistant to ideas or information that come at them in certain ways where it's more preached to them. Like or medicine. Yeah. And um, when you do it through an artistic way or creative way, it seems like people are much more open to hearing some of those messages or getting some of that information. Yeah. I think probably if you present someone with a thousand page book, and you say, here, this is all the history you need to know. A lot of people probably wouldn't read that book. But if you make it a TV show with the music and actors and all of this humor in it and some things that sort of make it easier, you can kick back in your chair with some popcorn, probably got a better chance of having people digest it. You are going to be at Black Comics Day here in San Diego. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about the panel itself and your co-panelists? Like, do you have any idea what kind of ground you might cover or what are you looking forward to possibly talking about? I don't know. I just look forward to sitting there. I know Kevin Grievo and um, Keithan and my good friend, the legendary John Jennings is on there. I look forward to sitting next to him and... Um, you know, I think everyone just being able to sit there with a bunch of guys who do what it is that you do talking about this subject matter. I mean, I really appreciate it. I had fun writing the story that I wrote um, the last March. Um, unique story. I don't know how much I can talk about it. I, it hasn't come out yet, so I'm afraid to give any spoilers. Um, but, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of the work. I think it's a beautiful book. I look forward to folks to see it, and I look forward to being there at the panel and um, talking to everybody. And this is being crowdfunded, correct? It is being crowdfunded. I think it's closed now. 
And what is it? I mean, I'm just curious. Like, it seems like there's more avenues for artists to get their work done and out there. And by having a project like this crowdfunded, do you feel that it gives you guys a lot more freedom to kind of create exactly what you want? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think anytime you have, it's one of the reasons why I started my own company as well. It's like anytime you don't have to ask someone for permission to do a thing and you can just sit down and create however you want to create and tell your truth. Just that idea of expression in and of itself doesn't mean it's going to be more tawdry or, or you know, more bold if it were to have come from a different publisher. But there is an idea of freedom that represents what all of this is supposed to be about. And I think when you talk about Black creatives coming together in an idea of making something that's honest, you would like to think that they had a free, open hand at doing this. I mean, literally, that's what I had. When the guys reached out to me, uh, when John and, you know, Bradley, and they all just were like, would you be willing to write a story? And they're like, sure. It's like, all right, can you make it 12 pages? Sure. All right. Can you, how long do you think it'll take? A uh, couple, week, two. Okay. All right. Get it back to us. I mean, literally, that was it. And no one said, like, I'm writing a couple of uh, stories. Like, I do The Mandalorian for um, Marvel and Lucasfilm. A lot of notes. You know, a lot of notes. And nothing wrong with notes. You know, I get notes from everywhere else that I work. But literally, I turned my story in and artwork was sent back to me. And that's not to disparage anyone who does give notes. But there is this thing when you look at the nature of what the goal is when you're talking about speaking about a subject, when you're talking about race and you're talking about horror and you're, you know, putting those two subjects together there's a certain sensitivity that's involved. I can see if I were to be with some publishers that they might be a little sensitive about that idea, you know, what you might say, or that could be problematic. But being able to have a free and open space to be able to create what you want, say what you want to say, you know, to see the final product, I think is a beautiful thing. And I think it speaks to um, how far we've come as a society and also as a comics community, to be able to be in a place where you can just make a thing and for us to be able to have this conversation and to have created a book that uh, I'm proud to be a part of. And you mentioned getting artwork back for what you'd written. Talk a little bit about how you work with an artist and do you kind of let them have kind of an a, a go at it first or do you like to give a lot of instruction in terms of like hey this is how I kind of see this looking um, what kind of a relationship do you have with those artists I email a script to an artist that's it I said that's that, that's I wish I could say no 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 you move this to the no I email a script to an artist I would never I know nothing about art other than to say it's pretty I mean I in the world of comics the thing that I respect the most, as much as my name goes first um, and writers get the um, lion's share of credit for stories, and I understand that part, the bulk of the work to me and the thing that I'm most in awe of are the artists because they create the world. They create the palette. They take you to the place. They physically take you to the place. I might be the tour guide, but... 
they are the ones that create the world. So I would never insult an artist in telling them what I think that they should do as far as art is concerned. If they're there and the editor hired them and they believe in them and I signed off and said, that's cool. I believe in them too. And, you know, in this case, and then really all of the cases I've been blessed to be in from the beginning of my career to this point, been blessed with some incredible artists to work with. And so, no, I don't really put my two cents in very much. Sometimes someone will say, what do you think of this color scheme? Or what do you think of this just for like, my opinion on something but as far as graphic storytelling is concerned i might say splash page here because i want the effect of turning a page and you want the shock of that thing like i'll lead you there within the script but as far as the actual look of a thing and all of that no i, I let the artists do their thing and um god bless them have you ever been surprised by what they come up with like i'm always surprised they always top everything that i do there's never been a time when uh, that's the that's the this is not a real word. That's the funnest part of what I do is you write these words. I have a script in front of me for my book Monarch uh, that comes out in February for Image Comics. Shameless plug for issue five. And I never know when I'm putting these words on a page what's going to come back. I know what's in my head. You know, but you never know what the art, and it's funny, it's a cheat in a way, because I'll say, uh, for instance, uh, Alex Lynn is uh, the artist for this book, and I'll say something like, uh, it's an alien, and the alien's going to a world, and I'll say something like, uh, you know, we're on this planet, and we're at the top of a vast mountain, and he looks out into this world that is... Um, a myriad of colors and shapes and sizes that looks like the Amazon rainforest or something like that. That was 12 words. And what comes back is the sprawling universe, you know, that this person has sat down for days and drawn and crafted and colored and whatever. I'm going to get credit for that. But this person with all of this talent drew this masterpiece of art. So, you know, who am I to come in and say, no, 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 that tree should be to the left. No, I would never do that. And you mentioned earlier that there's something of a renaissance in Black horror going on right now. Mm -hmm. So does this panel feel particularly appropriate? And, and do you feel like we are at a moment where there's an opportunity for more of these kind of films and books and TV shows to come out? Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean... I think, you know, the whole thing and, and the beauty of panels like this and conversations like this and just conventions in general and things like this is it's a way to get us all together and talking about this so that the world knows that we all exist. Creatives, Black men, Black women, that we know we exist, that we form alliances and that we're able to um, support one another. And, you know, across the board, certainly... In general, comics creatives, you know, not just of color in general, but in particular, if that matters. I, I want everyone to be able to be supported. But I do think that there's an emphasis in the moment that there's so many stories that haven't been told that we can uniquely tell. And I love being able to see. I had this moment when I was writing Philadelphia, and my daughter's 
came in the room one day and they were watching me write and I'd gotten my comps in for a previous um, issue. And I was flipping through and I was looking at the art, whatever. And my daughter looked over and said, what do you think? So it's pretty, but it was an unenthused pretty. You know, it was like you were saying it because I happened to be sitting here and I'm their father and I pay for them to go to school. And um, I was like, what? It's like, no, it's really pretty, Dad. And I said, there's something. There's something there. And he said, well, it's no girls. And I didn't think about it. There weren't any girls. And it wasn't like purposefully, I said in my mind, I wasn't going to put any girls. I just hadn't thought about it. It's like there's this whole John Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. There's this guy thing and father and sons crying in each other's arms as they bleed and this thing. I hadn't thought about it. And so I created another book because my daughter said that in my ear that day, Nita Hall's Nightmare blog, that's centered on a female um, protagonist because my daughter said that in my ear that day. And again, I'm sure that had I not been a me and I were a woman, that would have been something that may have been at the forefront of my mind. And so you, it needs to be more than me is the point. There needs to be other, there needs to be women. There needs to be people of other groups. There needs to be people across the spectrum who see things from different points of views and can add those points of views to the conversation. And there needs to be groups, cons of all types of people, you know, rainbow colored cons that everybody gets together within their groups that speak to them. And then we all need to come together and have our groups speaking to one another. You know, and so I think it's a beautiful thing. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your work and about the upcoming Black Comics Day. Thank you for talking to me and uh, hope to see you there and get you a black. That was Rodney Barnes. His new graphic novel is Blackula, Return of the King. He'll be appearing at Black Comics Day on Sunday, February 12th for the panel Get Shooked, the new Masters of Horror. I'll be back tomorrow with my interview with John Jennings, who's a fellow panelist. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. Remember to check out Cinema Junkie's archives, including a collection of podcasts highlighting black films and filmmakers over the past century. You can find videos and more podcasts at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend, because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.